Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. Welcome to all of our listeners around the world to this episode of Arabi Yat. I'm your host, Linda Khouri. My co-host, Raya, will be back next week with our new episode speaking to Yemeni women in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. But today, I turn to a very interesting International Women's Month episode with Bahraini researcher and activist, Ala Shehabi. I spoke to Ala on International Women's Day about who speaks for Arab women in the media, in America, and around the world. And that conversation led into an even more interesting conversation about the role that Bahraini women played during the uprisings five years ago in Bahrain, which really didn't get a lot of media attention at all. So I'm glad to present you with this interview on the line from London uh, via Skype. It's not a perfect connection, but I'm very happy that we were able to speak to her about her thoughts and get her insights about her involvement five years ago. Without further ado, here is my interview with Bahraini researcher and activist Ala Shehabi. Ala, you've spoken on many panels on a variety of topics related to the Arab world, especially the quote Arab Spring, which captured the attention of the international media. In 2012, you published a piece on the Digital Commons website titled A Problematic Discourse, Who Speaks for Arab Women? And in the article, you talk about an experience where you attended what you describe as a Gucci-sponsored affair organized by the Thomas Reuters Foundation and the International Herald Tribune, which kind of epitomized everything you think is wrong with how we talk about Arab women, and more specifically, who speaks for Arab women. Can you talk a little bit about that event and what prompted you to write that article? Yeah, so I found myself in 2012 sitting on this panel in w- that was being chaired by Queen Noor of Jordan. And for someone like me who's an activist um, that was really kind of involved in the uprisings and revolutions in the Middle East, it was bizarre because p- they represented the regimes that we were trying to overthrow. Um, at the same time, the, the image that was flashing on the, on the screen, on a huge screen behind me, was of, you know, normal women on the streets protesting and really the ones that were the fuel and fodder of the uprisings and the protests. And yet the panel was where other women like myself, Western educated, sleek, people that speak the same language as the audience. So I sat there kind of really questioning myself and questioning the panel and questioning the audience as well as, as to, you know, what are we trying to achieve here? Are you expecting us to represent the voices of those who have no voice, who are in the, who are taking to the streets, um, like the lady, the photo of the lady, in Tahrir, or is it the sleek lady, um, the queen who's standing before you, you know, full of Botox and bleach um, and uh, the kind of celebrity uh, royal that the West and policymakers and um, donors so much love? Or is it this, the lady that was chairing um, Queen Noor who's chairing the panel, who I have to say, you know, spoke to me afterwards in a, in a, in a polite and courteous way and we, and we had a bit of a dialogue going. But 
really, you know, which stereotype here in front of you really speaks for genuine feminist and women's causes. So there are, you know, it just epitomized the kind of confusion over, at the time at least, the Arab Spring provoked. And do you think that since then there's been less confusion? Um, I think the confusion's only increased um, having seen how things have evolved in the region into further conflict and violence. At least back in 2012, there were still, you know, hopes and possibilities for change. But as the region kind of has fractured and civil war and violence and further kind of very brutal brutal repression is taking place in, in uh, across most of the countries. So Bahrain is a small island um, in the Arabian Gulf. And these Gulf societies are considered usually to be quite conservative. Yet in Bahrain in 2011, you saw women... Uh, take to the streets um, almost in equal numbers to men side by side if not I would argue that they even led uh, some major protests in the country um, I saw women you know from all walks of life from business women to doctors uh, to teachers nurses um, all professions took to the streets um, and they helped organize protests they helped um, speak to the media, they helped write reports and document, they were they were providing shelter, food, um, they were really pushing uh, their sons, brothers, husbands to take part, and they felt that the time had come. And it was just fascinating seeing how all social barriers, everything you'd imagine, uh, stereotypical obstacles to be, you know, seeking the permission of the father or the husband, um, that had all gone. That was all swept away at that moment. Um, people instinctively just just uh, emerged um, from the shadows and found this, you know, found uh, connections and built beautiful solidarity amongst each other and um, and held hands. And it was just a really good experience to be part of. And it just made me feel like if you start from an uh, you know, those uprisings, what they did was they allowed you to start from a new blank page and draw the rules and redefine the rules, um, especially around gender and so on. And so we didn't t need to talk about women's rights because we were already there with a pen in our hands and, and we could decide what the rules were. Um, so I remember, for example, when the, the protesters occupied Pearl Square in the center of Manama for, for, for the first three weeks before the Saudis came in and destroyed it, um, you know, generally you'd expect the kind of more conservative people to have segregated areas, you know, the society is for women, the society is for men. But it was, it was just natural to be mixed and to talk and to speak because gender wasn't an issue. And um, it was just good and very empowering to be, to have been a part of that. And so we saw women immediately to, take control, you know, and be involved in the committees that were set up to manage the, the square from setting up kind of cleaning uh, system to road traffic to to media to, to organizing meetings with the media and seminars and other stuff. Yeah, it just felt like it, you could have started a new page and things were possible. Things could could have been different. Um, again, you know, as, as the crackdown and the repression took hold, um, you saw those patriarchal and um, social barriers get reconstructed again. Um, but at least for a, for a moment back then, you, you, could, you saw that it was possible that things could have been different. 
How did women participate in previous uprisings or or did they not? Um, I mean, speaking to sociologists and historians at the time, like when they were protesting in the 50s and the 60s, you know, they would really say that they really struggled to find a handful of women to take part. Um, I guess maybe back then the levels of education and so on were, 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 were you know, and the, mean, and the role of media and so on was, and women were more disempowered, but definitely in, in educating women, in Bahrain is also more uh, a kind of uh, less well-off than the rest of the of other women in the Gulf. They were just more inclined and incentivized to take part this time around. Um, and it just seems like there were kind of social barriers that just kind of broke away. Um, but the movement as a whole was a lot bigger. Like it, it, it was never to the scale, like in the 60s and the 70s um, that we saw. I mean, at, some po- at one point in Bahrain, there was at least, at least a third of the population was on, on the streets in one day. Um, so, so in terms of per capita kind of protest numbers, this was one of the biggest in the Middle East. Okay, so why didn't we hear so anything about Bahrain in the West? Bahrain is a small place, but at the same time, it's really played up as a very important strategic ally for for the US and the UK and other Western nations. So um, uh, it's a very inconvenient to have protests and challenges to a regime that you're really uh, involved or, or committed to supporting. For example, there's the American U.S. naval base in Bahrain. There's a new uh, British naval base in Bahrain as well. So increasingly, it's using uh, the regimes is using this kind of military cooperation uh, to also foster the kind of political legitimacy it needs to survive. Um, and so you never heard, you never saw um, foreign policy shifts either in the U.S. or the U.K. changing, even though they knew that their ally was really quite brutally suppressing the population. I mean, uh, we've had uh, over 150 deaths, people being tortured to death in custody, um, driven over by police, um, and or just shot at close range, and there's been no accountability. Um, there are at least three to 4,000 political prisoners right now, um, and all the, op- the entire political leadership has been forced into exile or in, in prison or just forced to remain silent if they want to re- stay in the country. Um, so it's a very, very awkward position for the West to be in because, yes, they feel that they need the regime. Um, and it, it just so happens that this is also a very brutal regime. Um, and this is nothing new. I mean, the West has always supported dictators where they saw strategic interest um, for their own country in, in continuing to offer both military and military and political aid and support. Um, so you hear, so you you know things. To this day, you know, four years, five years. Sorry, we're celebrating the anniversary of the of the 2011 uprisings, and you know, the Guardian broke a story uh, just a couple of weeks ago of how the UK um, helped redraft UN statements that were condemning um, Bahrain's uh, vi- human rights violations. I mean, it actually. Um, whitewashed it and toned down, you know, criticisms and concerns over kind of recent abuses. Um, and it's just very unfortunate because you feel that even though you, as an individual Bahraini citizen, were 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 courageous enough to rise up and face the music and face the the kind of repression um, and the violence that the state was prepared um, to kill you at one point, um, you're also facing all of its allies. You're facing the the other Gulf countries. That are propping up the regime, but you're also facing uh, most of the West 
who says, you know what, um, it, we'd rather we're not going to get involved. This is none of our business, but we're going to carry on um, arming. We're going to carry on hosting uh, the king and so on. So, so for example, in the UK, the king comes here every year to join the Queen of England um, for a, her horse show at Windsor, and he gets the red carpet treatment. Um, and for Bahrainis, they see that red carpet as being uh, painted in the blood of innocence. Um, and so it's, it's, that's, and then you just, unfortunately, see the media also doesn't really, you know, they try to cover it a bit in the beginning, but it just isn't, isn't something that they um, pursue. Um, you know, it's just the way it is. It's just the status quo. Um, and human rights after a while gets pretty boring. It's the same kind of cycle of protest and repression. And so more arrests, more, more, more um, torture. What's new in that? That's not really a story anymore. I'm speaking with Ala Shehabi, who joins me from London. She's a Bahraini writer and researcher, co-founder of Bahrain Watch, an NGO that advocates for accountability and social justice in Bahrain. And during the Bahrain's 2011 uprising, her husband was imprisoned. She's the editor of the collection of essays called Bahrain's Uprising. First of all, how have people coped with how the deterioration of the situation and and what it, and is, is there a role for women today that is different than their you know um, participation in the streets? Um, is there has it changed now? I mean, how are people fighting back, or if if they are at all? It's it's very different. It, you know, the, you'll hear in the media that you know the the uprising or the revolution has been quashed. It's been quelled as if it's over. But the tension is like you go to a country that just seems where people just seem to be bracing themselves, like they're waiting for something to happen and it's not quite arriving. It's like you know, you're waiting for a guest at home and you're waiting for the knock on the door, you know, a little, someone, something to arrive, something to change on the horizon. Um, but the regimes are so kind of um, persistent in, in refusing to adopt or accommodate any basic demands that it's kind of, it feels a bit hopeless, but everyone kind of isn't really very happy. So like um, one of the opposition leaders, he's a secular liberal guy called Ibrahim Sharif, you know, he says it's just a matter of time before the winds are going to expose the burning coals under the surface. You know, the coals are still burning, the anger is still kind of there. So that kind of the, the cycle of despair and rage still continues. And so, you know, everyone's just waiting for it to blow over again. Um, unfortunately, we've seen what, at what cost that comes. And so it just doesn't seem very sustainable. And so, the, but, you know, it's just an innate human instinct to keep resisting whatever ways you can. So, for example, the, the difference with this regime compared to, for example, Syria is that Bahrain still insists um, on on being part of the international community. So it still engages at the UN. It, it insists on hosting a Formula One race every year, it even nominated one of its princes to become the head of FIFA, the Global Football Federation. In doing that, it just brought a wave of... Uh, meet criticism and interest in what was happening in Bahrain because this was a prince from the royal family who wants to head global football who's been accused of torturing footballers because as part of the crackdown 2011 150 athletes were just rounded up I mean one of some of the strikers in the football team uh, the national football team were, were were imprisoned for three months and and tortured I mean I don't know what where else that would have happened and in, in which the person who's accused of kind of uh, ordering this or being involved somehow. Um, he's never been held to account and FIFA refused to investigate. 
Um, but this is, you know, the evidence of this is clear from from the state's own media agency. He w- he actually ran until last week. He actually finally, because of campaigning and because of the advocacy and because of uh, human rights activists highlighting the concerns, he ended up losing the contest, you know, um, but he was really a favorite to win. And so because of the regime continues to kind of want to be involved in these kind of prestige sporting events and, and other kind of global events, like holding a, like a, the Manama Dialogue, um, which is um, uh, a political forum every year and other things and things like that. It's important for their, this liberal facade that they try to, um, that they try to um, construct. So, you know, it's when you're you're when you're trying to build a brand like business friendly Bahrain, it just doesn't help your cause when there's images that are being tweeted of you know bruised and battered and bullet ridden bodies. So um, people keep keep you know speaking out, and I think social media to some extent has helped. And and women across the world, I mean, you know, and women are naturally going to be advocates of the movement because it's your husband, it's your brother, it's your father that's being made to pay the price so you get the but you know the, the the best human rights activists in the country are actually women in and, my opinion right and so your your personal story I, I know is that your your husband was in prison during the uprisings in Bahrain in 2011 and he, he's out now right yeah yeah he he spent a year in jail but you know he's his example was uh echoes the experiences of, of thousands of other people so um you know and my story as well the transformation that I personally kind of that personally occurred to me um, in in moving from being a lecturer and an academic to being a human rights activist is because of that kind of direct experience. But it touched the lives of, you know, that kind of experience touched the lives of, of hundreds of others. And, um, you know, we found solidarity as women. And it meant a lot to have that kind of solidarity between women while I was in Bahrain for a long time in order just to cope with that kind of situation, to think, what are we going to do? So for that, for that one year, you know, I, I learned a lot about who to speak to, what, you know, ideas of civil disobedience, you know, what do you actually do to make sure that, you know, the story of your loved one and the stories of hundreds of others actually gets heard. So it really did mean a lot for us to be a strong and united group as women. Um, But it was a very challenging environment because we were under surveillance a lot. I guess that speaks to the you know, reality that women's rights and and men's rights and human rights are all one. Like you can't just put women's rights as secondary to men's rights. Is that in women like feminist uh, rhetoric discussions in Bahrain? Is this realization at the forefront of movements um, for women's rights? Yeah, I know. I know friends in, for example, Egypt as well and Tunisia and other places were really saying, you know, what comes first? Do we fight for change, um, political change? And a change of regime, and you know, fighting alongside, you know, p- traditional male um, ro- leaders in the movements. And then, once we achieve that kind of change, do we then begin to talk about women's rights, or do we kind of make sure that, as women activists, you know, women's rights are first? We speak of women's rights right at the outset when you're writing constitutions, when you're building new organisations. You really make sure that women um, are involved and have an equal voice. Um, it's a challenge because in the beginning you have this common target and you don't want to distract yourself from anything else. So you think, well, you know, uh, you've got this repressive, brutal regime. Um, yes, I want equal pay as well, but really, you know, how high up? You know, we want freedom first, and then we can begin to talk about equal rights and equal pay and 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 rectifying stuff. 
that's been done in the name of religion and Islam and, you know, personal codification laws and, and other stuff like that. Whereas, you know, other people say, let's start with those things and then, you know, eventually build up to the big, you know, political picture, changing the big political picture. So it's not an easy one because when you find yourself in this kind of battle, you know, almost in the trenches, you have to really kind of prioritize what comes first. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. Some people have focused their advocacy around women's rights and improving, for example, uh, the judiciary or, you know, speaking up against violence against women and so on. But that conversation maybe was happened differently in different countries, in Tunisia and Egypt and Bahrain, that conversation was very different. The problem with the way that we speak about Arab women in the U.S. basically puts them all in one group as if all Arab women are dealing with the same issues in every country. And um, do you experience that? And in, because in, you've spoken in many panels and you, you're kind of mingling with the elites and the academics. And how can we take away the problematic language um, that we see within the U.S. media? Because we know how much the U.S. is contributing to maintaining the power of these authoritarian regimes that are violating everybody's rights. So I know there's many layers here. But if you could speak to that point. Um, so let me give let me talk about, for example, what Hillary, Hillary Clinton did. If we, if we turn our minds back to 2011, when uh, the Saudis came into Bahrain unexpectedly, um, there's questions around whether the U.S. knew that the Saudis were coming in. And there was fears, certainly there were strong fears around what would happen next, because it seemed like it was carte blanche to kind of crack down, kill, torture, arrest. There were raids every night. People were rounded up from their homes in this kind of pogrom. It was a very frightening time. You know, Hillary Clinton stayed completely silent. And when she was asked in a press conference, how do you feel about the Saudi intervention that some have called an invasion? She said, well, this is a sovereign right of a country to invite another foreign army without condemning or criticizing or expressing kind of concern around that. You know, that was, it felt like the US was given a green light to that kind of crackdown. So that's very kind of disconcerting and kind of disappointing as well. So, um, you know, it doesn't help neither men or women. Um, But at the same time, you know, accepting the narrative that Bahrain is liberal, it's women have the right to vote without looking at the structural problems that it's not about having token women that are selected by the king um, to represent, you know, that selected, handpicked to talk on behalf of all women and not enabling, empowering women through having a fair and equal vote in in, in this system is really what the issue is about. All right. That's all the time we have for today. I'm speaking with Ala Shahabi, who joins me from London. She's a Bahraini writer and researcher, co-founder of Bahrain Watch, an NGO that advocates for accountability and social justice in Bahrain. And during Bahrain's 2011 uprisings, her husband was imprisoned for a year. She's the editor of the collection of essays called Bahrain's Uprisings. Thank you for joining us today, Ala. Thank you. And that's all, folks. Thank you so much for listening to Arabiyat. Our theme song is by Muqata'a. The track is called Ahyat. You can follow him on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T. You can also get in touch with us at arabiyat.podcast at gmail.com. That's A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T dot podcast at gmail.com. Also, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and our Twitter handle is at Arabiyat. We love your feedback or suggestions for future shows. Until next time, this is Linda Khoury. 
signing off for Arabiyat.